Luke chapter 1. And when you find Luke chapter 1, please stand. We're going to be reading verses 1, verses 67 through 79. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 67. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 67, God's word reads, And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. And for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the truth, amen? Amen. amen. You may be seated. This is David Brown and Jerome Avery. They are, as you might assume, lightning fast track stars. Now, what makes these two men interesting is that David on the left is 100% blind. David is a 100% blind track star. How does that work? Well, as you can see from this picture, David tethers his hand to Jerome's and then Jerome listens to every command, or excuse me, David listens to every command that Jerome gives. And together, in perfect sync, they just race down the track. They do not go slow. In the 2016 Paralympic Games, they ran the 100 meters in 10.9 seconds. That's flying. And they ran the 200 meters and the 400 meters all the way around the track at the same lightning speed. Now, with that in mind, think about the level of trust that these two guys have to have for one another in order to pull that off. If one of them just slightly missteps, if 
David fails to hear or listen to one of Jerome's command, if Jerome's just a little off on what David's supposed to do, they're going to get all tangled up and they're going to eat it hard. It's not going to be good. But over time, they have developed this just incredible trust for one another. And here's the thing. You and I, every single one of us, want that level and more. That level of trust and more in our relationships. We want to have friends that we can confide in and know that they won't blab it all over the place and vice versa. We want to be that friend that people can confide in and know that we won't blab it all over the place. As youth, what do we want from our parents? We don't want them to micromanage us because they so distrust us. No, we want them to teach us and we want them to trust us in what we're doing. As parents, we want our kids to have a, we want to have a trusting relationship with our kids. We want them to open up to us and share where they're at. And we want them to listen to our guidance, to trust it. Couples, we want each other. Husbands and wife want. You want a couple. You want your spouse to be honest and dependable, trustworthy, not having to second guess their every single move. You and I want fellow believers sitting around us to be trustworthy. We want them to weep when we weep. We want the trust that know they'll rejoice when we rejoice. We want to be able to trust them that they'll tell us not just what we want to hear, but what we need to hear. We want to be able to trust those around us to, hey, when I'm in a pinch and you're in a pinch, we have a relationship such that we trust one another and we'll help one another. We want to be in relationship with people we can trust. We want our employer to be trustworthy. We want our spiritual leaders to be trustworthy. We want our politicians to be trustworthy. Amen? Amen. We want trusting relationships. Why? Because when you have a trusting relationship and you can trust another person and vice versa, what does that produce? That produces joy and confidence. These two guys, when they, when they in their interviews, when they're talking about the trust they have for one another, what's on their face? A massive smile. It's just joy. What, how do they talk concerning the future? It's confidence. It's bright. Their future is bright because they have someone they trust and they're working together with. I think of my wife. She is absolutely honest. She is supportive. She is so dependable. And being in a relationship with her and having that trust that I can have in her, is, it just fills me with joy and confidence. You know that when your spouse trusts you. It's like, yes! And it gives you all the more confidence and here's the thing, when you and I or anyone discovers that God is trustworthy, it brings about the greatest joy and it brings about the greatest confidence. 
For example, when I repented of my sin and trusted in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, God followed through. He saved even me. Can you believe it? Some of you are like, I'm not too sure. He saved even me. And as a result of him following through and saving even me, that just fills you just with unshakable, awesome joy and confidence. Let me say it another way. As a believer in Jesus Christ, I hate it. I loathe it, but I still sin. I hate it, but I still sin. But you know what I find in God? Someone who is trustworthy. He has promised that he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. And every time I repent, he does what he said he was going to do. He cleanses me from all my unrighteousness. He is faithful. He is just. He's the one we can look to and trust. Today, in the Christmas account, Zechariah, we're going to walk through his whole story, not just what we read today. Zechariah is going to discover how trustworthy God is. That God is who he says he is, does what he says he will do every single time. And when he discovers that, what's going to be the result? It's going to be unhinged joy and confidence. And that joy and confidence is going to lead him to what? It's going to lead him to worship God, to praise God, to tell of his mighty works. And you and I understand that. When you and I discover that God is trustworthy and follows through, fulfills his promises, answers a prayer, what do we do? We're filled with joy and confidence, and we say, praise God. When we or anyone like Zechariah discovers that God or rediscovers that God is trustworthy, it leads to joy and confidence, and that leads to the way we should always be living in worship, in praise of God. We're going to see this in Zechariah. And it's my hope today as we walk through this that you and I will be reminded, that you and I will be encouraged, maybe even discover or rediscover for ourselves that, wow, God is trustworthy. God is trustworthy. And then that will produce joy and confidence and that will just drive us as a body of Christ and as individuals all the more to live a life of praise to him. So with all that being said, with all that in mind, look at Luke chapter 1. At the beginning of Luke chapter 1, the very beginning, Zechariah and Elizabeth, what are they doing? They're following God. But they're also struggling. Look at Luke chapter 1 verse 6. Luke chapter 1 verse 6. And they, Zechariah and Elizabeth, were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. They are following God with all their heart, soul, and mind. But there's a struggle. Keep reading. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. The Old Testament is explicitly clear. Children are 
a blessing from God. Amen? The Old Testament is explicitly clear. Children are a blessing from God. Zechariah is a priest. It's his job to preach that truth. To preach kids are a blessing from God. You know, it's hard enough to not have a child and want a child. But it would be hard, it would be all the harder, all the more of a struggle to have to preach that truth, preach that children are a blessing from God, yet all the while you don't have that blessing at this point in time. That would be so difficult. Not to mention, not being blessed in this way, the community is probably asking, why? 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 And the immediate assumption of the culture of the day is what? It's because you did something wrong. That would be very difficult. That would be discouraging. And to top it off, if you look at the verse before, King Herod is the one in charge at this point in time. Who is King Herod? King Herod is a wicked king. An absolute train wreck when it comes to political leadership. What did he do? He's the guy who robbed the temple in Jerusalem for the purpose of funding the construction of idols and then placing those idols all over Israel. He's the guy who had the high priest of Israel murdered. He's the guy who had his own wife murdered. He's the guy who had multiple of his own kids murdered. He's the guy you know who sent the soldiers to kill all the kids under two upon Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. He's a wicked king. He's the guy who gathered multiple prominent and beloved citizens within Israel near his death and gave orders to his soldiers saying, when I die, kill all of them so that Israel is not rejoicing at my death but sad at my death. A wicked guy. He's in charge. So not only are Elizabeth and Zechariah, not only are they facing this personal deep struggle, they're facing this political struggle, this political mayhem, and we all know what that's like. Not only that, and probably way more significant to the pre- than the previous two, is that God has been silent for 400 years. Last word, last revelation from God, it's in Malachi, at the end of the Old Testament, it's been 400 years of silence. And that is a struggle. We all can relate to that struggle. It is so difficult thinking in, that God is silent and not active. And it's been 400 years of that. So Zechariah and Elizabeth, they are following God, and yet they have these struggles, these hardships. Now we come to verse 8. What happens in verse 8 of chapter 1? God sends an angel to Zechariah. That starts in verse 8, and then you come to verse 13, and look at what the angel says to Zechariah. Look at verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you shall call his name John. Great name. (laughs) And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. 400 years of silence broken. 
And God answers Zechariah's prayer. He says, you're going to have a child. And not just any child, but this child is going to be, as what the text says, great before the Lord. Later, the angel says that this child will be filled with the Holy Spirit even when it's in its mother's womb. Later, it tells him that he's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah, the one who will announce the Savior to the world. You would think that Zachariah is just off his seat, super happy, super joyful, but you all know that he's not, right? He does not believe what God, through this angel, is telling him. Apparently, he's been so jaded by his prayer not being answered for so long concerning a child, by the perhaps the political mayhem, perhaps the 400 years of silence, whatever it is, he's so jaded, he, a priest, supposed to be a leader amongst the people of God, does not believe it. He's having a hard time trusting God. So what does God, through this angel, do? You know what God does. God makes him mute. He essentially says, I'm going to close your mouth and you're going to sit and you're going to watch that I am who I say I am. I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do. That I am the trustworthy God. And God immediately starts proving this. Look at verse 22. Verse 22, Zechariah is made mute just like just like God said through the angel. Just like God said. Then you come to verse, what is it, 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. Just like God said. God's essentially saying, shut up, sit down, and I'm going to show you over and over and over again that I am trustworthy. That you need to trust me now and in all things. Then we skip over, we come to verse 39. In verse 39, what happens? Mary comes to Zachariah's house. Mary meets with Elizabeth. And lo and behold, the child within Elizabeth's womb has what? Been filled with the Holy Spirit. Just like God said through the angel previously. And not only that, but Mary is pregnant with the Messiah. The one Zachariah's son is supposed to announce, be the forerunner of. God's just placing it all perfectly together and saying, See, I am who I said I am. I do what I say I'm going to do. I am the trustworthy God. I am the definition of reliable and dependable. You need to place all your trust in me and believe in me wholeheartedly. Now look at verse 57. Verse 57, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, just like God said. He said, you're going to have a child, and it's going to be a boy, and you're going to name this child John. Just like God said. Now look at verse 58. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown 
great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. You remember what God promised back in verse 14? That surrounding this child's birth, there's going to be joy. There's going to be joy surrounding this whole thing. Not only you, Zacharias and Elizabeth, but many others. And here in the text we see, just like God said. He does it again. He's proving himself. Now, for me, this was actually like the most annoying promise. You know when a person comes to you and you're hurting, you're struggling, like Zechariah and Elizabeth obviously were, and they say, it's all going to work together for good. One day you're going to be full of joy, and you're like, please give me your shirt collar so I can punch you. You know that? It's sort of like God promises in that in verse 14. One day you're going to be singing my praises. And it does happen. Exactly like God said. Now look at verse 59. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. Again, great name. Verse 61. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. I just love how honest the text is. It's, it's typical at this time for a child to be named after their parents or grandparents, and the family's right in there fighting for the name that they want. But Elizabeth, she puts her foot down, and then everyone looks to Zechariah to make the final call, verse 62. And they made signs to his father, signs to Zechariah. So not only was he mute, but apparently he was deaf because they have to make signs to him. Verse 63, and he asked for a tablet and wrote, his name is John, and they all wondered. And then verse 64, and immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. God said, until the child is born, you're not going to speak. The child is born, he begins to speak, just like God said, God is just driving home for Zechariah and for us today that God is who he says he is, does what he said he will do, that he is the one we can trust. From here, what happens? Zechariah did not trust God's plan. He rejected it. He was rebuked and you could say punished for it. But over the course of nine months, Zechariah discovers, rediscovers, and rediscovers, and rediscovers that God is trustworthy. And what does this lead him to? It leads him to this joy, right? And this confidence. What does it say at the end of verse 64? He's blessing God. He's found that God is trustworthy. It fills him with joy and confidence. And it turns out that he's going to worship God as a result. And then in the following verses, the verses that we read today, we see the contents of his praise. Look at verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, or your text may say proclaimed, or sang, or shouted out loud, saying, Blessed be the Lord God. Drastically different person here than when we saw earlier. He has seen, he has experienced, he knows that God is trustworthy. It brings him joy and confidence that he didn't have before, and he's praising God like none other. 
And then he gets into the whys. And the first reason he's praising is for God's visitation. It's prophetic praise for visitation. Look again at verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Why? For he has visited and redeemed his people. Due to sin, humanity is not worthy of God's visitation. We don't deserve his holy and his good and his merciful and his gracious visitation. But God, in Christmas, in this moment, is doing just that. He's visited through this angel. He's visited through the Holy Spirit that has filled John the Baptist. He's visited through the Spirit that is now filling Zechariah. And most importantly, he's visited through Christ, who is now in the womb of Mary. God is just a God of tremendous grace. We don't deserve his visitation, but he comes after us. And he is just absolutely ecstatic, and he gives this prophetic praise concerning what God is and what he's doing. God promised that he would visit his people, that there would be an Emmanuel, God with us, promises throughout the Old Testament. And God is proving himself faithful, trustworthy, every single step of the way. The second reason he praises is for God's redemption. Look again at verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now, at this specific moment, God has visited them. But God has not redeemed them. At this point in time, when he is saying this, John the Baptist is a baby and he has announced nothing concerning the Messiah. Jesus is still in his mother's womb. He hasn't gone to the cross. Jesus hasn't risen from the dead. Jesus has not provided the redemption promised. So why in the world does Zacharias speak this way? Like this redemption has already happened. The answer is very simple. One word, trust. Trust. He's speaking in what's called in Greek the proleptic aorist. In other words, he's speaking about something God said he would do in the future. And he's so sure of it. He's so trusting in God that what God says concerning the future... He talks like it's already happened. God said it would happen in the future. I trust him. I'm going to talk like it's already happened. He's that sure. He's been moved from distrusting to trusting God this much. He's trusting him like you and me. You and me, we trust God for the future in this way. We worship in the proleptic heiress all the time we're talking about future heaven and we're thanking God for the heaven we will be in. We're talking in the proleptic heiress. We're worshiping God saying, God, you promised this and I'm so full of trust for you. I'm going to worship for you in light of what you will do like you've already done it, like I'm already there. This guy has been moved from distrusting God to trusting God fully. Not only concerning what God has done and is doing, but for the future. And you know what? His trust is absolutely well-placed. It's not a blind or a naive trust. 
Not in the slightest. This trust concerning future redemption that Jesus will provide, it's not blind, it's not naive. Every morning I get to my, I jump into my car like I did this morning, and you know what? I just start up the car like it's nothing, and I go. I, why do I do that? Why am I not worried about whether or not it's going to start? Maybe I should be, but I'm not. Why? Because my car has a great track record. I have a friend, Nick, he now lives in Missouri, and he has always been willing to tell me the truth I need to hear. You know that friend that doesn't tell you what you want to hear, that doesn't flatter you, but is willing to tell you in that firm yet gentle way what you need to hear? He's that guy. And I would say right now, if I went to him, he would tell me what I need to hear. Why? Because he has a great track record. And as a response of his track record, I look forward and say, yeah, if I go to him, it's going to happen. I'm going to speak like it's already happened. And God's track record is what? Zechariah knows this. He's a priest. He's of the line of Aaron. His whole family's priest. He's been involved in synagogue his entire life. He knows the scripture. He knows that God has been faithful in the past and he's done it perfectly. He, know, he knows that Noah was promised the flood, but he would, God would rescue his family. And just like God said, he knows the promises given to Abraham concerning a child that would be born way beyond the normal years of giving a child, birth to a child at 100 years old. And God said it and it happened. He knows that. He knows what happened concerning Moses that God said after 400 years trapped in a nation as slaves, the greatest nation of the day, God said, I'm going to rescue you. And that's exactly what God did. He knows, he knows all the prophecies of Daniel, how Daniel prophesied the, the Persian, the Medio-Persian, the Greek and the Babylonian and the Roman Empire, their rise and fall. He's seen all this humongous track record and now he has a track record for himself concerning the birth of his own son. He's saying, this is not a blind, naive faith. This is a faith based on a track record of perfection. He is trusting in God. He has been radically changed. Now look again at verse 68. Look at that word redeemed. It means to set free by paying a price. It means to rescue at great cost. At this point in time, Jesus has not set people free from their sin through his death and resurrection on the cross. Jesus has not set his people free in establishing his earthly reign. But Zechariah has discovered that God is trustworthy. So in light of that, he trusts that God will redeem his people, spiritually and physically. And his trust is well placed. We've experienced it, right? Jesus Christ did go to the cross. He did pay for all the sins of mankind. And then he did raise from the dead so that all who trust in him can receive eternal life. Amen. His trust was not blind. It was not naive. It was well placed in the one true God whom we can always trust. Amen? Amen. And then David continues, and he just continues in this same mode. For next, we go to this prophetic praise for the Davidic covenant. Look at verse, verses 69 to 72. It says, And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. 
as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Here David is pointing to the Davidic covenant and all the promises that it entails. The Davidic covenant is a promise from God to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, 1 Chronicles chapter 17, and 2 Chronicles chapter 6. And this is the gist of the command. David, from you, there's going to come a Messiah. And this Messiah is going to be a redeemer, and this Messiah is going to be a ruler. Not only is he going to provide salvation, but his kingdom, there will be no end of it. He will rule and reign forever. That's the Davidic covenant in a nutshell. And here we see Zechariah, he's seen pieces of that covenant fulfilled. Mary, his cousin, all right, she is pregnant with the Messiah, right? And Mary and David are of the house and lineage of David. God's putting the pieces to, together. Is the promise of the Davidic covenant fully fulfilled? No, not at this point. Redemption hasn't been purchased. Earthly kingdom has not been established. But Zechariah understands that God is trustworthy. He's trusting him. He's seen all these pieces put together. First, the Davidic covenant fulfilled in this lineage of David. And now he's looking to the future and saying, yeah, I can trust God for the future. He has a perfect track, track record, and he's putting it all together perfectly, just like he said. Just like he said. Look at verse 71. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. He's speaking of the Jews and believers in God. Have the Jews and the believers in God, subsequent believers in God, have they been saved from their enemies at this point in time? No. But he's saying parts of this covenant have been fulfilled. And I've seen that God is trustworthy and he's going to fulfill the rest. He's going to do it. He's going to come and die on the cross like he already has. And he's going to come and he's going to establish a worldwide reign for a thousand years as we see in Revelation chapter 20. And then in the new heavens and new earth, he's going to continue to reign, as we sang, forevermore. So first he points to the Davidic covenant. And he says, God is trustworthy. He's doing it and he will do this. Next, starting in verse 73, he points to the Abrahamic covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before all of our days. Abrahamic covenant, it starts in Genesis chapter 13. It's reiterated in Genesis chapter 15. It's reiterated over 40 times in the Old Testament. It's the promise that from God to Abraham that through him all the nations will be blessed. That through him there will be a Messiah and Savior. That through him there will be redemption and a kingdom of God. All that promise to Abraham. And Zechariah is pointing to it and he's saying... This is being fulfilled, and it will be fulfilled. God is who he says he is. He's going to do what he said he's going to do. He is trustworthy. One thing in light of this, look at verses 74 and 75 again. 
why is God do these things? Why does he have this Davidic covenant? Why does he have this Abrahamic covenant that ultimately points to the new covenant? Why is it all there? Why is God saving? Why does God save us? Verse 74, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Jesus saves so that you and I can serve. Jesus came so that you and I, who are sinful servants, could be changed and made righteous servants. So that you and I could be filled with the Holy Spirit and live as we were created to live, praising and magnifying God. God doesn't save us so that we can just go off and do our own thing. He saves, why? That we might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Zechariah knows that. That God redeems, that God is a kingdom in which we serve him. And he didn't serve him perfectly, but one day Zechariah will. Just like you and I, we don't serve him perfectly today, but as we continually lean and believe on Jesus Christ, one day we will. It's being fulfilled, and one day we'll be perfectly fulfilled. Now let's look at the last point of this prophetic praise, which is the Abrahamic covenant. Well, actually, before we get there, I want you guys to look at that guy. That guy is a great man bun, all right? He is Zlatan Ibrahimovic. I've mentioned it before. He's retired, but I think the greatest soccer player in all of history. All right? Just an absolutely incredible player. Some people might hear, hey, you're saved to serve and say, oh. But it absolutely should be the total opposite. If this guy, this guy with a man bun called me up and said, hey, I want you to be on my team. And I want you to give your all, and I want you to play soccer through and through, and I want you to do this, and I want you to do this, I want you to do this, I want you to do this. What would I say? I would say, yes, 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 it's Zlatan, yes. It would be so awesome being one of his players. That guy has a man bun. Think about, <laughs> think about God. What is he saving us for? To put us on his team. To serve him and not make no difference eternally through playing soccer, but make an eternal difference as a result of being saved by him, chosen by him, being filled by him, and serving him. There's just nothing better than that. Amen? Amen. Now, let's move toward the new covenant. The new covenant. Look at verse 76. And you, now he's switching over to his son, John the Baptist, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. And that does happen. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit from us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and shadow and death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. And all of that hasn't happened when Zechariah says it, but all of that does happen when Jesus Christ starts his ministry, right? Jesus is the light 
unto the world. Jesus is the one through whom, he's the Prince of Peace through whom we have peace with God. He's the one who in his grace and mercy offers us the ability to be forgiven of our sin. This is all elements of the new covenant. All prophesied in the old, such as in Jeremiah 31, Zechariah is taking all of that and saying God is trustworthy. It's all happening and it's going to happen and elements for us have already happened. There's one thing I want to point out here. It's verse 78. Why is this happening? Why is God doing this? It's not because he owes it to anyone. He not because he owes it to you. It's not because he owes it to me. It's because God is so gracious and merciful. Look at verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God. That's it. The reason Jesus came is not because you and I are great or anyone else is great or deserving of salvation or the forgiveness of sins. It's because God is great in mercy. It says God is great in grace. And he he is willing to and wants to give it. And he did, just like he said. In light of all this, I have two applications We've seen that Zechariah, he started struggling to trust in God, and then he moves to this strong, joyous, confident trust in God. And then subsequently, he worships God. Now let's close with two applications. Application number one is unbeliever get into God's word. Unbeliever get into God's word. Why do I say that? Because in God's word, what will you see? you will see over and over and over and over and over that God is who he said he is. He does what he said he will do. He is the trustworthy God that we need to put put all our hope in. So today, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ and you're struggling to trust in God for your salvation, read the word of God and find that God is trustworthy. And my hope is as you look into the word that it won't return void, but that God the Holy Spirit will use it for what it is, a sword to pierce your lack of confidence and give you confidence that God is trustworthy. He is who he says he is. He does what he says he does. And you need to place all your hope in him. You need to believe that Jesus is the son of God. He did come. He did die for the, pay the price for the sin of mankind so that all who trust in him can receive eternal life be forgiven of all of their sin, be filled with the Holy Spirit and live that life of serving God that is more joyous and better than anything else. So application, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, get into the word of God and see that there is every reason to believe, to trust in Jesus Christ. Application number two, believer, get into the word of God. As believers, I will admit it, It is easy to wane in our trust for God, right? It's easy, just like Zachariah and Elizabeth. He is what? What is he described as again? He, I would love to be described this way. Both righteous before God, walking blameless in all his commandments. And I would, whoa. So these two are people of God, believers in God, but they're struggling to trust in God. And sometimes that's true of you and me. Things happen. We have struggles of our own. And it's just like, mm, it is so hard to trust in God. What do we need to do? We need to get into the word of God all the more. Because the word of God is the sword of the spirit. 
And the Spirit will use it to pierce through all our uncertainty, to pierce through all the confusion, and show us that God really is who He says He is. That He does what He says He's going to do. That He is trustworthy. And we can put all our hope in Him. Let's pray. Dear God, You are...